Amen. Thank you, Jamie. Hey, guys, doing Grace Hill? Y'all got that extra hour of sleep. So you guys are looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Uh, hey, I'm excited to be here to bring God's word to you today. Uh, we are kicking off. Man, those lights are bright. Wow. Alan wasn't kidding. So excited to continue, though, in this series titled, uh, let me say this right, The King Returns. I keep wanting to say The Return of the King, uh, but that's Lord of the Rings movie. We're not going to be preaching on Lord of the Rings today, although that'd be a fun sermon. Uh, so The King Returns, week number two, and we're basically looking at the second coming of Christ, and that is essentially the future day when Jesus will return to destroy evil, to rescue his church, and to once and for all establish, establish his perfect and eternal kingdom. And so one of the things that we see all throughout the Bible, all throughout Scripture, are the people of God being encouraged to place all of their hope in this day, as Kathy read earlier, as Alan encouraged us in this morning, uh, hoping in this future kingdom and in this future day. For example, Paul writes to Titus. He tells him that we are to wait for our blessed hope, he calls it, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter also says in his first letter, he tells us that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the, the revelation or the revealing of the Son of God. And so the biblical reminders remind us that we have this incredible future hope. And what we want to spend today doing is really just looking at that, looking at the, the nature of the new heavens and the new earth of what that will be like, and even thinking through how that should inform the way that we live now today. And the reason that the New Testament especially encourages the church to hope in this future is because, as we all know, we live in a world that is far from perfect. We live in a world tainted with sin. It's broken. And so, man, as the church, we need to be propping each other up so that we can get our head out of the distractions of daily life so that we can see, oh, yeah, there is, in fact, a better day that's coming when Jesus will set all things right. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. I also think it's important to study the new heavens and the new earth because, uh, man, there's just a lot of bad misinformation out there about what happens after we, we die or what happens uh, when Christ returns, I feel like, for the most part, Jane Seymour and Touched by an Angel uh, informed a lot of our view of heaven and the afterlife from the 90s. And so that's not a good thing. Uh, so we tend to have this view of we're maybe just going to be floating in clouds, playing harps, in this like drug-like euphoria. And uh, the reason that that's lame is because, A, it's unbiblical, and B, it's not what we were created for, right? We were created by God for physicality, right, for a physical earth to enjoy its resources to enjoy each other, to work, to play, to enjoy the seasons, different cultures, food, to cultivate, to grow, to create, to establish. And we know in part that this is what God desires for us because this is exactly what we see him doing from the beginning. And so with that, we're going to begin today by turning to Genesis chapter 1. So you all can turn there, uh, very beginning of your Bibles, all the way to the left. And what I want to allow God's word to do right now is to, uh, to allow it to paint a picture for us as to what it is that God intended originally for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into Genesis 1 and start off by moving through a few select verses uh, from the creation account. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll also have them on the screen. And so let me begin for us here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Here's what God did. 
Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and then God separated the light from the darkness. Verse nine, skip down a little bit. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So we see God here ordering, structuring, establishing his creation, and then saying what? He's declaring that it is good, or everything is as he intended it to be. Verse 11, a little further down. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and then there was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. So now we see here this, this progression in creation where not only is creation good, but we now see creation doing what it was intended to do. Namely, it's beginning to bear fruit. It's beginning to flourish. Keep going, verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And so there it is again. God's goodness not only established, but it begins to multiply and to spread. Verse 26, then God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and the livestock and the earth and every creeping thing that creeps. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And then verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. The Hebrew word there for very actually means mightily or mighty. It was mightily good. I love that. It's different from the other, it was good statements. So God creates man and he does what? He gives uh, man and woman this mandate to steward all this goodness and to ensure that it continues, that it flourishes, that it multiplies, and that it would eventually cover the earth. And so this is what we uh, call the creation mandate is the term we refer to. And as we read through this creation narrative, as we look at this, it's here that we are actually introduced to a very specific concept. This is a concept uh, that every Hebrew person would have been very familiar with from the time when they were first very little all the way through the end of their life. Um, this is a concept that we see thematically recurring throughout all the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, all over the Bible. And that is this. That is the biblical concept of shalom. Shalom. So when we hear the word shalom, we might be tempted to think peace. And that's certainly true. 
Uh, but the scriptures actually give us a much more robust understanding of this Hebrew word, more so than just uh, peace. We see this in actually Jeremiah 29, 7, where this word is used. Uh, famous verse talking about how the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, and Jeremiah calls them to seek the peace or the shalom of the city that they were in, while they were prisoners, by the way. The ESV and the NASB both say, seek the welfare of the city. The CSB says, seek the well-being. So uh, you're kind of seeing it's more than just peace, right? NIV says, I like this one, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. So Jeremiah's prayer was that the Israelites would pursue shalom or goodness and flourishing in Babylon. And again, keep in mind, Babylon, they were, they were the enemy, but that's what God wanted for them. And so this is exactly what we see here in the creation account from Genesis. God says that it's good, but also that that goodness needs to multiply. It needs to flourish. It needs to do exactly what he intended it to do. Uh, we're reading through our book in our community group, in the Ashburn community group called Dwell. And in this book, they focus on this term shalom a little bit. And so I want to share uh, what the author Barry Jones says about shalom. He says this. Shalom is often translated in our English Bibles as the word peace, uh, but it means much more than our common conceptions of that word convey. Shalom is more than the absence of hostility or just an inner sense of personal well-being. The nuances contained in the single Hebrew word require a cluster of English terms to adequately describe it. Wholeness, harmony, flourishing, delight, fulfillment. It is closely associated with corresponding terms such as justice, and righteousness. Shalom is the condition of everything being in accord with God's intentions. Everything being the way it's supposed to be. Shalom is the dream of God for a world set right. It is that state of affairs that results when God's personal presence and just rule are fully realized. The incarnation of Jesus was the incursion of shalom into the brokenness of the world to secure for that world a hope beyond the brokenness. I love that. And so you can probably see where we're going with this today. Uh, when we talk about the idea of shalom, it's eventually gonna lead you to that future day when Jesus returns and perfect shalom is instituted. When God establishes the fullness of his kingdom and sin and death are no more. And so as we begin to have conversations about the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth and all that good stuff, we have to see and understand how foundational, how central this concept of shalom is to our discussion. And so now I wanna pivot, and so we've kind of unpacked that term a little bit, and I wanna actually look at three passages that uh, focus exclusively on the new heavens and the new earth, and that really paint a picture as to what this shalom is going to look like. And I think the Lord gives us passages like these so that we might yearn for shalom, so that we might whet our appetites with what is to come. And so we'll look at these passages. And the first one is gonna be this. First one's gonna be Micah chapter four. This is a minor prophet, middle of the Bible, just to the right of Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, so you can find it there. We'll also have it on the screen. Uh, but Micah chapter four is where we're gonna be. And Micah, like so many of the Old Testament prophets, is, uh, it's, it's, it's a rebuke letter, right? He's, he's calling the nation of Israel to turn from their sin, to repent. And so it's kind of a challenging indictment. And yet, in the midst of that indictment, uh, Micah gives the Israelites uh, a picture of this incredible 
covenant promise that God has for them, that despite their sin, despite their wandering, God still, because he has made them his people, because he has chosen them, he paints for them this incredible picture of what's to come, the hope beyond. And so Micah says this in chapter four, verse one. I can read this for us. He says, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and he shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people walk, each in the name of God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so what Micah illustrates for us here is the shalom of God's law. The shalom of God's law. So here we have the future shalom or the flourishing, remember, of God's law above all other laws. God's ways above the ways of the world. Notice what he says, right? He says, the nations are coming to, verse 2, to learn his ways, to walk in his paths, because out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord. And, and this is made possible, how? Because like a mighty mountain, God's law will be established for all to see. It will reign supreme over all other laws. All other ways of living and operating in the world will see it, delight it in it, and be drawn to it. Um, Julie and I, my wife, we went to Oregon a couple, uh, actually a year ago, and man, it was such a great trip. Um, we basically did uh, Portland, the coast, but then my favorite part of the whole trip, uh, for sure, was Mount Hood. Um, Mount Hood, any guys ever been there? Mount Hood, Oregon? Let's see, nobody, that's okay, that's all right. All right, there, there's one, there's one. Uh, it's this 11,000 foot volcano, absolutely gorgeous. You can see it within any direction where you're from, within like 100 miles, and it's just incredible. So I wanted to put a picture up on the screen of Mount Hood, if we can do that, Aaron. So this is a picture that I took. Um, and we got that picture? No picture. That's all right. I can describe it. It's okay. Uh, seriously, it's amazing. Go home, Google it. It's awesome. Uh, but there's a cool view of basically you're overlooking the city of Portland, and you can see like, like 80 miles away, Mount Hood way off in the distance. And it's just massive. And so uh, it's, it's just incredible. And, and, you know, the whole rest of the state is gorgeous. There's waterfalls. There's these massive evergreen trees. There's hills. There's the Columbia River Gorge. It's amazing. But yet, when you are face to face with this mountain, uh, everything else pales in comparison to, to its glory, to use a biblical term. And despite everything else around, you are just drawn to the grandeur of this mountain. It's amazing. And so this is, this is part of the imagery that Micah was playing with here. Uh, so here, there's, there's coming this day when Christ will reign, when his law will be established with just a certain level of authority, but also beauty, to where people will see it in the world and they'll say, man, let us come 
and go up to this mountain, the mountain of the Lord. Let us learn his ways. And as the, as the world submits themselves to the ways of God, the result will be peace and shalom on a scale that we have never before seen. Let me read verses three and five again, three to five of Micah 4. It says, he shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I love this imagery because uh, swords to plowshares and then spears into pruning hooks. We see these images of death and bloodshed being transformed into images of agriculture and prosperity. So under the former system of man's law of man governing in the way that seems best to him, uh, which is now, of course, you know, we have, man, there's wars, there's fighting, there's uh, injustice on a mass global scale. But when God's law, and remember, this is the law that says to turn the other cheek, to love your neighbor, to love the widow and the orphan, to love your enemy. When God's law and his precepts reign supreme, the natural byproduct will then be shalom. It will be flourishing. It will be prosperity. One commentator says, um, the verse here in Micah closes with the prophecy that one nation will not use its weapons anymore against any other nations. People won't even train for war. The west points of the world will no longer be necessary. Instead of learning the art of war, the nations will learn the art of peace. When they all submit to our Lord and his Christ, peace or shalom will break out. And so the prophet Micah wants us to see and to hope in the future shalom of God's law, the new heaven, the new earth, when the world will sit under his ways, which will then usher in peace. And that's the shalom of God's law, one of our great hopes. For our second passage, we're gonna be in Revelation 21. Y'all can turn there. Uh, all the way, the end of the Bible, chapter 21 is where we're gonna be picking up here. And just a quick refresher, so this is the Apostle John writing this. He basically has this incredible vision of an angel revealing these end times to him. And so last week, Alan preached on the Lord's return and him basically defeating death and sin, all that. And so then now Revelation 21 and 22 focus on uh, the new heavens and the new earth and the final establishment of that kingdom. So let me read uh, this for us. This is Revelation 21, verses one to five. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, we said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Trustworthy and true. And so what we see here in Revelation 21 is the shalom of God's presence. The shalom of God's presence on earth. Back in the creation account, uh, if you continue reading those first two chapters, uh, you see that Adam and Eve, humanity, had perfect fellowship with God. It even says that they would walk with God in the cool of the day. 
But then in chapter three, they sin, and so now God's presence is cut from them. Uh, God does give them future promises of restoration, but for the time being, that relationship, that presence of God is severed. But here in Revelation, looking forward, we have a glimpse of what life will be like when God's presence is fully manifested, totally unfiltered. And this is made only possible because of what Christ has accomplished. Romans 5 sums this up beautifully for us. Let me read this. Romans 5 verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. I love this part. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we see sin and death kind of reigning as this world system. But in the midst of that brokenness, right, Jesus comes in, grace breaks in and destroys the power of this world system. Jesus declares victory over the grave, defeats death, and says, hey guys, I'm coming back, so be ready. And then the effect of Jesus' return, the effect of him coming back, is what we see here in Revelation 21. So how is it that we see shalom through Christ's presence? Well, verse one, we see that there's now, because of, he, because of the coming kingdom, he has instituted a new heaven and a new earth, so the created order has been restored Isaiah 11 also gives us a similar picture of what this will look like with the lion laying down with the lamb and the little child leading them. And it says that they shall no longer hurt or destroy because the earth will be full of the knowledge, the law of the Lord, as we talked about earlier. Continuing on, Revelation 1, we see the sea is no more the sea. There being an image in the Bible for chaos or sin or destruction. And so basically saying that that the sea, uh, that image of evil is being done away with. It's destroyed. Verse two, we also see that Jerusalem is a renewed city and that this is where God is now making, taking up his dwelling place, where God's people also dwell with him. And since God has transformed his people, making them pure, John uses this vivid imagery here, comparing them to a bride adorned for her husband. Beautiful, clean, and loved. Verse three, we see the announcement of, that God will now dwell with his people And then verse four, because God now does dwell with his people, there's no crying, there's no pain, there is no mourning. And then verse five, God says, lastly, I'm making all things new. And even tells us to write this down because these words are faithful, trustworthy, and true. And so church, we see that when God is present, shalom also is present. And then for our third passage, we're gonna continue into Revelation 21, and then into 22. So let me read this for us. We'll pick it up in verse 22 of chapter 21. It says, And I saw no temple in the city. And notice notice this imagery. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory 
and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Keep going, verse one, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. A lot here, uh, but in general, what we see here from these two texts is we see the shalom of the nations. The shalom of the nations. John shows us in these verses how shalom will be extended to every nation on earth and the righteousness that will literally transform the kingdoms of the world. Right now, because of sin, obviously we live in a world where there is corruption, where there's injustice prevalent, Uh, in every country, at every level, in so many different ways. We've all experienced this. But part of the future hope that we have as Christians is that after Jesus returns, we will actually get to see and witness the transformative effect that God's law and his presence will have on the nations. Right? We will still have different cultures, people groups, languages, and tongues. We see this in Revelation 7. Go check that out. But it's this diversity that brings God so much glory. And so, of course, it will continue into the redeemed world. As a, uh, as a college student, I had the privilege of traveling to the country of Tunisia, uh, which is North Africa, and right on the Mediterranean, beautiful. And it was ama- an amazing trip. We basically did a survey of Islamic culture and, um, and the Islamic faith and Arabic culture. And so... It was incredible. We stayed in a city in the northeast part of the country called Sousse. And right on the ocean, beautiful beach town, olive groves everywhere. It was awesome. People were friendly, welcoming. The food was great. And so it was just this incredible culture. It was this incredible experience. I absolutely loved it. And I have just super fond memories of being there. Uh, And yet, a number of years after I was there, uh, some of you might remember this, there was actually a mass shooting in that same city of Seuss on some of the same beaches that we went to. And I think 30-something people were killed. Uh, Just tragic. And I can remember hearing that and just feeling so discouraged because, man, I had this incredible experience there years before, and now I'm just reminded of just, despite the incredible, uh, just the beauty of that culture and how much I loved it, man, there's just still so much brokenness in that culture and in every culture in every country on earth. And so it was discouraging experiencing this. And so again, I think part of why the Lord gives us these passages here, these passages of future hope, is so that we might yearn for the day when we'll get to experience the glory of the nations and the beauty of other cultures without sin. And this is what John wants us to see here, right? He says, verses 22 and 23, he talks about God's presence being like a light Light here being an image for knowledge and for truth. And so the nations are going to walk not by their own knowledge, not by their own standard of truth, but by the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 24 even says that the nations will bring their glory into 
The city, I love this. So this is basically the people groups from all over the world will bring the best of what their cultures have to offer as an offering to God. Up to the, up to the mountain of God, up to the dwelling place of God to offer worship unto him and to learn his ways. Verses 25 and 27 tell us that the holy city's gates will always be open and never closed due to worldwide peace and safety. Shalom will cover the earth. And then in verses, in chapter 22, verses one to five, man, these five verses are just so full of Old Testament imagery. Uh, but the gist of these five verses that they're primarily trying to convey, what John's trying to communicate here is that basically from within Jerusalem or the place where God dwells, is where we find the source or the fountainhead of life, the very source of shalom. And so we see this crystal clear river flowing through and out of Jerusalem. We see the image of trees and how these life-giving trees, each bearing their different fruit each month, bring life and nourishment and healing to the nations. And because of the healing that the holy city brings to the nations, verse three, there's no longer anything accursed. The world, God's servants, will all worship him perfectly. And then verse four, they will see his face. Uh, this is another one where there's just a lot of significance here in the Old Testament. Man, people just could not approach God. In fact, uh, you might remember the episode in Exodus of Moses, and God has to like show him his backside because Moses just can't see the face of God because sin separates us from God. But now because God has come down, because he's pursued us and redeemed us in the gospel through Jesus, we will be able to see him as he truly is. 1 John 3, 2 says this. It says, beloved, we are God's children now. Again, John's looking forward to the day. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so John shows us that simply being in the unfiltered, unmitigated presence of God Seeing him for who he is will have a transformative effect on us. We will be made like him. His name will be on our foreheads, this conveying the idea of us being a part of God's family. Uh, he has laid claim over our lives. We are his. We will bear his name perfectly forever. And then verse five, there will be no more night. Again, that beautiful image of darkness and death being done away with forever. And you know, a lot of what we also see here uh, going on in all these verses is we see uh, Jerusalem, the holy city, mentioned again and again and again. Uh, and and there's, there's incredible purpose to this. So I would argue that the significance of Jerusalem being mentioned over and over is not just about a geographical location, but actually that the meaning is in the name of Jerusalem. So the word Jerusalem is actually made up of two words, two Hebrew words, Yeru and Shalom. Yeru, Shalom. And as we've been looking at today, shalom means, of course, life, peace, flourishing. And then the Hebrew word, I love this, the Hebrew word yeru means to shoot out of or to flow out from. So yeru shalom, Jerusalem, being the place where God dwells, it is out of this place where shalom flows, where shalom shoots forth, where it spreads out, where it multiplies. And the nations are transformed as shalom spreads out as it spreads, multiplies, and covers the earth. And so we see the shalom of the nations as a result of God's law and his presence reigning. And church, even though this is 
far off. This is in the future. God graciously has given us his presence, his Holy Spirit now, so that through the Holy Spirit, we can experience his shalom in part. And we'll experience that, of course, fuller uh, in the future. And despite the present difficulties of life and the heaviness that we experience as we get older and we realize just how broken the world is, broken bodies, we get older, the Lord gives us these future promises so that we might be found faithful in the here and now. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul, understanding this reality, understanding this frailty to humanity, says to the Corinthian church, he says, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. So we're broken, we're cracked, we're stained. But we have this to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Christ and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So basically talking about people being saved. As we see an increase of worship of people coming to know the Lord, being saved. And so if that people's salvation means for us Christian today that maybe a little bit of temporary discomfort for the here and now, so that God can use us, so that he can do a work through us, that's okay. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, the glory that we've already looked at. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, because of our promised future shalom, we can now, today, be people of shalom. We can joyfully submit to his law now, even when it's hard, even when our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, whatever, might look at us strange and might think we're weird for doing so, because we know that one day God's law will reign on earth. We know that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess. Church, we can have peace in the midst of difficulties and trials because we know that one day God's presence will be fully manifested here on the earth and that as he dwells in perfect unity with us, the light of his presence will cast out all darkness and sadness and we seeing him face to face will be made like him. Grace Hill, we can have an eager expectation for the nations and a passion to share Christ and to make him known now because we know and we anticipate we live for that one day when every tribe, every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So I wanna share another quote uh, from that same book I shared earlier. Um, Barry Jones says this, talking about mission, talking about how we anticipate this day. He says, if mission is the alerting of people to the reign of God through Christ, then our mandate is to do whatever's required in the circumstances to both demonstrate and to announce that kingship. We feed the hungry in the world 
because we know that in the world to come, there will be no such thing as starvation. We share Christ because in the world to come, there will be no such thing as unbelief. Both are the fashioning of foretastes, I love that phrase, of that world to come. None more or less valid or more important than the other. The Spirit has come now to bring us foretastes of the world to come, to begin the work of making God's future real in the present, and to empower us to dream up and to fashion foretastes for ourselves of the world to come in the ways that we announce and demonstrate the universal reign of God through Christ. And so now we're kind of getting into mission, and we're going to talk about this. Alan's going to talk about that more next week. But church, we exist as God's image bearers so that through us, shalom might be made visible to the world. That through God's people, shalom might be seen and heard and experienced and that it would multiply just as God intended it to from the beginning. Let me pray for us as the band comes back up and we can respond uh, with a time of worship. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful picture of shalom that we see in creation, that we see coming out of the mouth of the prophets. Father, that we see in the New Testament as Jesus comes and as he loves the undesirable. God, we pray that you would help us to know by your Spirit's power just what we have been saved to. Lord, may we know the great hope that we have, as Kathy read earlier out of 1 Thessalonians 4, Lord, that great hope. I pray that that would just settle heavy in a good way on our hearts. Father God, that it might inform the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we treat our neighbors, the way that we love our coworkers, the way that we serve our spouses and our children. Because there's gonna be a day when we will do that perfectly and we won't even have to try. It's just gonna ooze out of us as we bask in the presence of Christ. Father, as your law goes forth, Lord, as we see the nations redeemed, Father, may we live for that day and may we be found faithful now. We love you and we pray that this glorious reality would even inform our worship now as we sing, as we close with song. Amen.